Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with the co-founder and CEO of Semaphore, a new global news site, plus a stunning new title called Linkseed, and one of my favorite restaurant critics, Gray Stand. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Semaphore, the global news site started by Ben Smith, the former New York Times media columnist and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and Justin Smith, former CEO of Bloomberg Media, launched last month. The news brand will aim to address what it calls frustration around bias, polarization, and information overload but it would take at least 10 years to get fully up and running, according to Justin Smith, who sat down with Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé. Well, Semaphore is a new global news brand that is going to strive to be two things at its core. One, incredibly, incredibly high quality, and secondly, extremely, extremely independent. And we're launching towards this objective by focusing on what we think are a range of big consumer frustrations that exist in, in the news business. I, as you know, Tyler, and well, by the way, thank you for having me on. It's really great to talk to you. You're, I'm a big admirer of Monocle and in many ways, Semaphore is you know, inspired by, by parts of Monocle. But I spent the last 25 years of my career in global news media from The Economist to The Atlantic to running Bloomberg most recently. And, and one of the things that I was just so evident when you have a front seat to this industry is just how across the last five, seven, 10 years, maybe 15 years since the advent of social media, the news consumer has become very, very disaffected. There are a lot of frustrations out there to here in the U.S., but also in different countries around the world and even across border sort of media. But the, the frustrations are range from bias to polarization, all this, the distortive effects of social media, the very lame way, frankly, the traditional news media responded to social media by sort of jumping into the game and going for the clicks and going for the you know, blending of news and opinion and partisanship. And so in my mind, it's created a big, big, big opportunity globally to do something different, to do something new, and to listen to these frustrated consumers and bring something extremely high quality, independent, transparent to the world. And so that's what Semaphore is going to strive to do. As you've identified, there is an enormous opportunity, and and you, of course, pitch this as global. The one thing that, that strikes me, and, and this is, you know, even since you, you know, we haven't talked for a while, but I think we touched on this last time, is that, of course, there is an Anglosphere news agenda. There is an agenda which is set in Washington and New York, and then it's sort of picked up in London and Toronto and Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere. And there's a resistance to that as well, Justin, where the rest of the world is like, actually, America's problems are not Poland's problems, but because they're so front and center in even some of the media outlets where, where you've been, that also it's, it's, it's the, on the part of lazy newsrooms, these get picked up. So American struggles then become global struggles when actually people are much more concerned about many other things living in Krakow and, and Warsaw. So how do you square that? Because I think there is this sort of pushback or resistance to 
the American way of, of doing things and certainly the American way of looking at things where people say, actually, the whole world is not actually a bunch of liberal arts colleges in Maine. <laughs> well, I mean, let me provide some personal context to that. I mean, I'm half English, half American. I was raised in Paris and French culture was my sort of first place I, I came to know the world lived extensively in Africa, lived in Asia, China, Hong Kong for 10 years. And so I've spent my life actually as a half American living around the world. And one of the sort of the, the core premises of Semaphore is I started my career in 1993 at the International Herald Tribune in Hong Kong, which had a circulation at the time of about 200,000 subscribers. It was effectively sort of a news, newspaper for the whole world that was delivered to American expatriates. The FT also was sort of hanging around at that time, or maybe more than hanging around, maybe in its prime, with maybe 100,000, 150,000 subscribers. The Economist was in its prime in the 90s. And this audience of cross-border English language news consumers was really sort of a Western expatriate audience primarily. And it was sort of bankers from McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and, you know, the folks living in the business class sections of airplanes crisscrossing the world. 30 years later, you think about the global English language news consuming audience, it has just exploded. It's exploded because of the way that the, the global demographics have changed and the rise of this global middle professional class, which is on the march in the Middle East and on the march in Africa and on the march in ASEAN and India and all around the world. And of course, in, in parts of Europe and Northern Europe, et cetera. But yet this new rising global professional class does not actually have a sort of a unifying source of cross-border global news. They're still having to consume uh, a lot of the traditional news organizations that were set up either 19th century newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or broadcast or cable channels from the 20th century like the BBC or CNN, which are really are just exported feeds of American or European content to the rest of the world. And this is where you have to squint a little to see the future of Semaphore, because while you may look at it on our second day or a third day today and say, well, this feels very kind of a little bit U.S. centric, even though they're kind of going for a global thing. The fact is, is that it's just what you're seeing is the sequencing of a what is ultimately going to be a, this sort of a three, five, seven, 10, 15 year effort to actually cover the whole world in a very different way over time. But we started because I live in between New York and DC and my partner, Ben Smith does as well. We've been running American news companies even. And so the logic to start with a US edition and a sub-Saharan African edition was that we knew this market in the US well and Africa for various other reasons, which we can talk about. But the plan is to knit together and to launch a, a whole range of global regional and national editions that are gonna be written for those markets. And so what you're seeing right now when you go to semaphore.com is actually primarily the US edition of this future tapestry of global regional editions. And you know, in, in a few weeks, we're actually gonna be breaking out our African editions. So you'll be able to go to semaphore.com Africa and see basically a, a 24 seven African news site. And our plan is these are gonna be for those regions with a global perspective. And that ultimately we're gonna be expanding with this approach and, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take us, but we're hoping it will ultimately blanket the whole world. I don't know if that explains the, what you see as this, this American centricity at the outset, but um, that's that's how we're approaching it. But will I have an international semaphore to go to? Because I may not want 
the Ghanaian edition. I may not want the Polish edition because in my business, I want to know what's going on everywhere. So this is just it's it's a selfish of question, course, yeah. but no, I think no, it's no. but it's also but it's also one which lots of people because I might be the African grocery magnet in Nairobi, but you know I wonder how do I step out of my lane to read a business story because I want to hear more about what's happening in that sector in San Diego as much as what they're doing in Colombia. Of course. Well, the answer is yes, there will be, you know, the core platform of Semaphore in its maturity, um, when we have a lot of these incremental regional editions all around the world and build that out, the core platform will be a truly global platform. And so the core Semaphore will be Semaphore International. And, in, you know, and, and honestly, the, the International Herald Tribune, you know, I have that same nostalgia for it, having worked worked for it and loved that newspaper, loved loved the, the quality, the, the global finishability, the sophistication, the general interest, you know, the global gossip column on the back. Yeah, you know, a lot of semaphore was, was really inspired by sort of thinking through, well, if you fast forward to 2022 and it's no longer a world of printed newspapers and so on, but this audience of 200,000 is now 200 million. What does the Herald Tribune for this new generation look like? And I think so you can look to us to develop that. And, and, and one last point I would just say is we're not going to be having national editions of smaller countries. We'll have national editions of four or five of the largest countries in the world. And then we're going to be having, we'll have regional editions, which we're, which are going to, it's not going to be this hyper-local strategy that, you know, that, that I don't think would fit well with our brand. Mm. We have to talk business very quickly, but of course, you're a private enterprise, at least so far, so you don't have to disclose everything. But at launch, I don't see a lot of advertising right now. You'll know the background that we come from. And so I'm very interested in this conversation because you also led something quite remarkable. You were part of that moment at The Economist, certainly with Bloomberg as well, Bloomberg being a subscription business. And everyone talks subscriptions, subscriptions, subscriptions at the moment when it comes to the business that we're in. But we see that also the wheels are coming off a little bit with everyone pushing for subscriptions. It's becoming more and more difficult. So I'm wondering what is the model there because I don't see advertising and you weren't, you haven't been begging me for money uh, to subscribe yet either when I come to the site. So which, which I think, which is a pleasant because it's like, it's just like coming into someone's front room and, or someone's living room. And, and I, I have to say, it's, it's so lovely to have just a warm welcome <laughs> when you come to Semaphore right now. However, yeah. there, I guess there is a point where you pull the bar trolley away, but, but how's it going to evolve? Course, Let us no, know. No. Well, listen, I mean, you know, I, as you know, I have a, a publishing background and a commercial background and I'm take great, great pride and interest and have a lot of passion around the monetization of quality news media and journalism. That's what I've done my whole career. So I can actually, I can assure you that despite what you see, and I think probably what it means is that you've been visiting semaphore.com on, on a web browser of some sort or on a desktop correct, or a mobile correct. phone. Yep. Actually, we we launched with eight big global advertising partners, and they are substantial, significant, long-term partnerships with eight of the world's most blue chip companies, an international contingent of companies as well, such as Tata from India is one of our founding partners. And Hyundai's premium new brand, Genesis, is a global founding partner and other brands like Pfizer and MasterCard. And so it's been a very, very successful commercial launch. You'll see the vast majority of their current advertising across our newsletter platforms, which is you may or may not have subscribed to them. We have eight different newsletters. I just did. I just did. <laughs> so to, the, to the main one. So uh, good. To so the main good. one, flagship. Well, yeah, flagship. flagship would, would, 
yeah. reflection is, is sort of the global morning Sound, sounded very me so i, I went for it's that one <laughs> but there, but there's some other ones i mean there's a there's a there's a beltway one called principles which is focused on washington power and policy and there's a business one on global business and tech and climate and i think 75% or 80% of the actual starting point ad revenue and advertising allocation is to our newsletter products because that's the audience we've been, we were able to build up that audience in anticipation of our launch and and i think you'll be seeing in the next few short weeks a lot more advertising on the homepage we do actually have some some ad units across the article pages you may have seen but so the model is 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 premium direct sold large strategic partnerships with big brands quite monocle-esque, actually the way you think about where you've pioneered a lot of ad models we're also I think much like many other publishers that I've been with events and convening live and virtual has been a big part of my background and career. And we're doing, we've been doing a lot of that. We have something called Semaphore X, which stands for experiences, which has already done 11 um, sponsored events since we, you know, even prior to launch. And you can expect us, to, we'll be rolling out some very creative, different, big signature convenings across the next couple of weeks and months. So advertising and events to start with. And then we're, you know, 12 months down the line, 18 months, 24 months, we'll look into the possibilities of subscriptions. I think obviously, despite what you point out, the sort of subscription fatigue, particularly around the sort of the streaming space and mm. but even, even the new space is, is real, but it's also real that, you know, five years ago, very few general interest news brands around the world really had significant subscriptions. And so I think consumers have really, really become comfortable with paying for quality journalism now across the world to different degrees in different different markets, but generally across the world. And that's something we'll explore over time too. Tyler, my philosophy of monetize, of managing news and media companies is, is revenue diversification. Media and news is not necessarily the sort of the, the, the most high margin business to jump into in the world. It's the most fascinating and wonderful business to be in. But because of some of the business model realities, you really you really can't choose your revenue streams in news media. You've got to just, you've got to go after as many as possible and, and do each of them extremely well. Thank you very much, Justin. And the website is semaphore.com. Justin will also be speaking at the Monaco's Chiefs Summit happening in Dallas on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 8th and the 9th of November. Moving on now to a beautiful new title landed on my desk, called Linseed Journal, an ode to Linseed. Each volume of the new magazine is themed around a single organic material. The first issue is the apple. And around the topic, there is a fascinating variety of articles around it, its cultural significance and more. I spoke to the title's founder, Louise Long, who even brought me an apple. Louise Long, welcome to The Stack to talk about your brand new magazine, Linkseed, which is, is a thing of beauty. I mean, we, I, I definitely want to talk to you about all the details here. Uh, but first of all, Linkseed, tell us about the name. I mean, I mean, the, first of all, I didn't know the linen came out of Linkseed, actually. What an amazing discovery. <laughs> yeah, it was a, an amazing discovery for me as well. I mean, Linkseed is an incredible natural material. It's also known as flax, and it's one of the world's most versatile, resilient crops. It's obviously a foodstuff for humans, but it's a fodder for animals, and it goes into all sorts of different forms of art and craft and objects of everyday life, from 
carpentry, oil for carpentry and oil painting, obviously linen, which is kind of one of the most ancient textiles in history. So it really inspired the whole concept for the publication, which is about these intertwinings between the land and human culture. So it seemed like an apt title. And although it feels very poetic, it's very beautiful, gentle at times, there's also an encyclopedic side to it. I, I don't know, for some reason I thought when I was a kid reading those books as well, and that's, that's so beautiful as well. Yeah, oh, I love that you picked up on that because that was really something that I wanted to be part of it from the beginning. I've always loved maps and encyclopedias. Mm. And as you might have discovered, we have four chapters throughout the publication and the third chapter is much more encyclopedia-like. It's um, sort of more functional with notes and recipes. And we sort of wanted to be able to have a space for different types of content and different forms of information and different reading experiences and create different moods and worlds within one space and explore the possibilities of print in that way. And what do you mean that, for example, this first issue says on the cover here that is is the Apple Volume 1. So for each volume, are you thinking to choose an element or a food or, or something, and then you kind of will base the issue around that element? Yes, exactly. So very much like the linseed we're taking an organic material as our theme for each print edition so volume one is the apple um, which is kind of one of the you know most original timeless cultural objects but it's a theme that's very much interpreted in a sort of symbolic metaphorical Mm. way much more abstract than you might expect and it really sort of allows us to look at the world through this lens but bringing in all sorts of different content and types of ways of working so that's personal essays but also writing poetry and lots of specially commissioned artwork from around the world and also weaving together historical and archival imagery which was really sort of part of the concept from the beginning in terms of stitching together geographic boundaries but also through place and time so not trying to draw too harsh distinction between the past, what's part of history and the present, and trying to create these resonances between cultures and historical periods. I mean, and it is quite international because the magazine takes you to all sorts of places, you know, takes you to Mexico, to Kenya, among others. I mean, takes us to the UK. That was quite nice as well, the way you did it. If it ends here, the haiku of New York. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, I love traveling and I love experiencing new places, but the idea was really to bring together contributors from all over the world who are uniquely placed to speak about or respond to a particular environment or a particular place. So in New York, obviously I needed to have New York in there being the Apple theme, um, oh, yes. but it's not, it's not hopefully sort of too obvious <laughs> an inclusion. And yeah, it was really a joy to be able to work with so many different contributors and also, you know, go out and find people who are particularly placed to speak about where they came from and commission both new talent and and find people that were sort of more emerging writers or artists. It's such a confident launch show. I want to know, like, have you worked in any magazines before in, in, in each way? Because, I mean, this is clearly your project, is your thing, but uh, how, how was it before? I want to know because it's such a beautiful product. I want to know where you came from, in a way. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very kind. Well, I've worked for a number of years as a freelancer, as a photographer and a writer, working with lots of different publications. And I've always loved print. It's always been something that I've sort of admired from afar and had thought for a while about doing something myself. And really, it sort of came together, I guess, as a combination of 
things that I've been thinking about for a long, long time and ideas that I've been gathering. But um, it also quickly became something that was about a spirit of collaboration. And I started working with Emily, my designer, and also Phoebe, who was supported on the editorial side. And once we'd opened up for submissions, I was really flattered by the quality of responses. And yeah, it became as much about sort of bringing together other people's ideas and for it to be a space for those different sorts of responses to kind of breathe and find these unconscious connections because it's really about trying to weave together ideas that you might not otherwise see placed side by side. Even with the paper stock as well, because you've been quite playful, there's quite a lot of different textures and sizes as well, which I think is quite nice. Yes, I mean, that was just a really, really fun <laughs> part of the process. And it was always going to be a print project. And that was sort of the crux of it and working closely with our printers. Is it printed here in the UK? It is, yeah. And like I said, the four different chapters have their own design identity. So we wanted that to come out in the paper as much as in the design structure and the type of content that you experience as they play out. If people are interested in Lean Seed, how, how are you planning to sell the magazine? Is it... I don't know if you have a subscription or do you sell it on your website or in some kind of a uh, few magazine stockists around the world? Yeah, so we're selling both on our website and through specialist magazine shops here in London and also with an international distributor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we hope it can be a space that will continue to grow and into events and exhibitions maybe because it really wanted to be a sort of gathering place mm. um, as much as anything else. And, well, the first thing is that you're already thinking about the next uh, one. You don't need to reveal it. But <laughs> yes, yeah, we're thinking about the next theme. I've got a few ideas that I need to, um, yeah, I'm just letting it settle and see which one feels most apt for number two. But it'll be into next year and very shortly going to be opening up for submissions for volume two. So really hope to hear from a lot of people. But I like the thing you mentioned that you're thinking to do some events or even because, you know, there's a lot of art. I can totally see some of those things like in real life, you know, something that you can touch, that you can see in, in a specific space. I mean, just an idea. That's know. nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, um, I came from an arts background, mm. but I also love food and it seems fitting to be able to bring those things together in real life. And as much as print edition is much about the tactility of paper, I think it would be nice to be able to bring together people in person and hear different responses. A very random question. Mm. Why did you choose Ling Seed as a name? Do you think it sounded good? And because of those many kind of meanings to the word in the end and how much, as we mentioned at the beginning, that it comes out of leaning as well, which is super interesting. Yeah, it really felt like it encapsulated all the ideas that I was thinking about in terms of my own interests spanning all different forms of culture, whether that's food culture or visual culture or just being out in the world. But it's obviously a natural material that has this deep sense of history, mm. but is particularly relevant for people who are still farming it, who are still growing the natural material for linen. And I keep getting told how nutritious it is as well. So I told you my mother loves it for breakfast. That's for amazing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she will like the, the magazine for sure as well. Listen, uh, Louise, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming over to Monaco 24. Oh, thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. Thank you very much, Louise. The first issue of Linkseed is out now. Go to linkseedjournal.com. And finally, on the show, one of my favorite restaurant critics, Grace Stand. 
Nose-to-tail eating is making a comeback in the UK in the face of the cost-of-living crisis. How to report and write restaurant reviews in these times? Monaco's Laura Kramer caught up with restaurant critic and food writer Grace Dant. In the 1950s and 1960s, in Britain, that was very, very common for people to eat these things, tripe and innards and all the wobbly bits. And then the supermarkets arrived. And, you know, especially for a lot of working class people, it kind of said, you don't have to do this anymore. Like you can have this pre-packaged meat at a price and it's a steak. And these things began to represent luxury. For the last, say, 10, 12 years in British cooking, we've tried to uh, make offal and, uh, yeah, the cheaper, stranger cuts of meat much more fashionable. What I am seeing now is people suddenly going, you know, what can we do with liver? What can we do with kidneys? You know, these are people, Generation X, maybe like slightly younger, maybe slightly older. Their parents ate that and then moved away from it and said, I don't want to do it anymore. And we didn't do it either. But I think in the future, this is it. I think we have to get over the ick factor about a lot of these things. Of course, nose-to-tail eating is common in many countries in Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa. I'm originally Romanian. Tripe soup is one of the best things in the world. I believe you. Tripe soup must be lovely. But it's just the, you know, the 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 way it sounds to these to untrained ears, you know. So what we, you could either have a delicious cullen skink with, you know, beautiful fish in it or tripe soup. Now, one of them sounds delicious and one of them doesn't. What are the restaurant trends you're seeing? The hospitality industry has had to overcome the devastating impact of the pandemic, and now it's the cost of living crisis. In terms of your food writing, how are you approaching reviews now? You know, I can't say that we're not in a really a real pickle at the moment. I see it every day. I'm seeing closures. I'm seeing real anxiety uh, amongst my friends in the restaurant industry, how they're going to get through. I think the run-up to Christmas may party and may carry people along. I think January, February, March is going to be really, really tough. This last weekend, I reviewed a restaurant which was £15 a head. And some people were happy. And some people quite rightfully said, well, if they're managing to do a menu for that amount of time, for that amount of money, rather, how kind is this to the staff? How kind is it to the environment? How kind? I think that what's going to happen over the next few months is a lot of questioning about the value of eating out in general. The good news, I would say, is we have gone through these dark times continuously over the last few years. And what always prevails is that people want to eat out. They may shy away from it for a little while, but then the storm blows over. And what they want is to sit down with their friends and look them in the eye and share even the most humble and cheap of meal. People will always want restaurants. So if there's any good news, it's that. I wanted to also ask you about your podcast because it's a very unique setup and it high profile guests come to your personal kitchen. What can people expect from the fourth season of Comfort Eating? We can expect a real 
array of celebrities revealing the thing that they eat behind closed doors that nobody actually really admits that snack they cobble together when no one's looking i don't want to hear about their celebrity diet plan and i don't want to hear about the posh restaurant that they got taken to by their manager what i want to know is the thing that they're eating when nobody's looking what you can expect is more of, of me in an absolute pickle trying to get my house tidy for celebrities turning up because it's the most exposing thing I think that a human being can do is run a podcast from their own li their own living room uh, because there's always a moment about 20 minutes before the taxi arrives where you're just flying around chasing your own cats around the room <laughs> making your loved ones go and hide in other parts of the, the house so you often have to dispose of family members who want to fangirl the guest So between your writing and the podcast, what is your late night go-to comfort food, Grace? Okay, I'm one of those bores about air fryers. And, I, and I'm and i sorry, please, no, no, don't run away, right? <laughs> I got an air fryer and what I found is that you can make the most glorious toasted sandwiches. So what you do is you take anything out of the fridge that needs eaten. You put it between two pieces of bread. You butter the outsides of the bread and then you put it down and then you just put it into the air fryer. It's basically a Franken sandwich that comes out <laughs> and then you eat it all and you lie in a pair of trousers that are just um, unbuttoned at the top. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We're back next Saturday. And meanwhile, we can always listen and subscribe at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Saint Etienne with Underneath the Apple Tree. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's goodbye from me.